Hey there, we're nearing the home stretch of the summer months. And over this summer, with Seth being on sabbatical, we've taken a dust off of the archives and looked at some of our favorite episodes from the past. And today we're going to replay episode 34, which we called Therapy and Theology. It's interesting how uh, in folks like a church like ours that has just a lot of emphasis on theological tradition, you know, reading the scriptures, remembering theology, reciting the creed, um, it can be easy to uh, kind of dismiss the important role that stuff like therapy could play. On the other hand, in a culture that's just obsessed with therapy and therapeutic stuff, it's easy to dismiss theology and just imagine that everything can be handled through therapy. And so this was a conversation we had about therapy and theology. How do you bring those together? Uh, what are the different thing, different roles that both contribute uh, to our overall health and flourishing? So uh, take a listen. I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. It is awesome to have you guys with us. Uh, Seth, it's good to see you today, brother. It's good to see you today, Luke. Glad we get to do this. This is one of my favorite parts of our job. Yeah, <laughs> this part barely feels like a job. Yeah, I was thinking, is it even part of our job or is it just <laughs> something we do before we do our job? Yeah, I don't know, but uh, but it's a lot of fun. And so if you're new with us, um, what we're doing is just trying to have conversations that really think about some of the stuff that's out there in the world, but that actually is really kind of in us as well that isn't necessarily all that aligned with uh, God and his word and his kingdom purposes. And so we just try to have some conversations about that. And uh, today, um, you know, I'm mindful, Seth, you guys, uh, you just had, you know, Olivia, right? You have Jay and, and then you had Olivia. And it's interesting because when people are expecting a baby, they kind of all say the same thing. They go, well, I just want it to be healthy. Mm -hmm. I just want it to be healthy. And that desire as a parent never goes away, right? You never stop wanting your kid to be healthy. But at some point, you you go, well, but I also want more than that. I want them to sleep through the night, and I want them to learn to read. And I, I really, them. I really want them to sleep through the night, <laughs> You're right? So badly, yeah. And I want them to be able to get good grades, and I want them to develop athletically or musically or something. And I want them to be able to find a talent or an ability. I want them to, you know, we we end up wanting all these things more than health. And yet, at the root, what we really do still want is for them to be healthy, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, et cetera. And so today, we're kind of talking about this desire we have as, as uh, Christians, and for you and I as Christian leaders, to help our church be healthy, right? And we talk about birthing and strengthening healthy local congregations. We want each congregation to birth and strengthen healthy leaders, healthy disciples. And uh, I'm struck by that because we didn't say we wanted to birth and strengthen mature disciples. Why Why healthy versus mature when, when really what we want, right? We want our kids to be healthy and mature eventually. Uh, why Why in disciple making is it about health and, and not maturity? Or is it the same thing? I think health is more of a goal that everyone can have, right? My three-month-old can be healthy. My two-and-a-half-year-old can be healthy. and And I can be healthy. And we all can be in full health but be at various stages of maturity. And so one of the reasons I like that we use the health language over maturity language is that mature versus not mature feels like this kind of false binary. Like there's not like a mm. point at which you're immature and then boom, all of a sudden. Yeah, you cross a line. Yeah, you go from being all of a sudden immature to all of a sudden mature. But ah, Right, yeah. the halo begins to. Yeah, like clicks and you get your wings or something like that. Or <laughs> right. all of a sudden you get yeah. the Holy Spirit badge that's on your forehead that you're like, oh, that guy's mature. Look at him over there. Sure. And I've always found that people who classify themselves as mature tend to not be. Whereas... 
Yeah, a lot of times when we say mature, what we really mean is experienced. Yeah. Someone will say, oh, they're a mature Christian. No, they're just an experienced Christian. Yeah, a lot of, lot of reps. It's kind of like humility, like the people who are fastest to say that they're humble. It's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, it's one of sure. those, <clears throat> you have to have someone else say it for it to be true things. And but, so the idea is that if, if we pursue health, maturity will come. Yeah. And that anyone at any stage in the, you know, following Jesus process can be a healthy disciple even if they're not yet mature. Yeah, and I think part of that too is it actually serves to lower the shame instinct, right? Because if, so you're a, you're a dad, how old your oldest? 15? 15, yeah. 15, so my oldest is two. So you have 13 years more experience being a dad than me. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm trying to be a healthy father and you're trying to be a healthy father, then I'm also less inclined to compare myself to you because I'm doing the best I can with two and a half years experience. You're, you're doing the best you can with 15 years experience. And so... It'll, it gives me some permission to just be where I'm at in my stage of development without feeling like, why am I not as good at this as someone who's been doing it 15 years longer than I have? Mm-hmm. It's the same with between churches. Like I think about Josh Watt, who's a great pastor and is a great guy. Redemption North Mountain is healthy. Redemption Gateway is healthy. Um, but Redemption Gateway is there's more development. Sure. There's more infrastructure. There are more leaders. And a lot of that has to do with time, not necessarily health. And so we can't really measure, is Remption Gateway healthier than Remption North Mountain? Because that's, that, that'd be silly because it's different stage of development, different stages in the journey. Just like Olivia, who's three months old mm-hmm. compared to Jay, who's two and a half months old. One of them's more mature, but I can't look at Olivia and be disappointed. Sure. Why aren't you as mature as Jay? Yeah. That'd be silly and, and, and dumb. And so uh, what I found a lot of times, especially like newer Christians, will kind of shame themselves because they won't know as much as someone who's been a Christian 30 years, even though they've been a Christian like two and a half years. And it's like, be the healthiest version of you you can be at your current stage of development. Yeah. And so rather than kind of measuring maturity, which is mostly arbitrary and silly, making the goal of being health, because uh, at some point when you're, especially in development, you know, I think it's funny at some point, uh, like the healthier you and I are probably the less we'll grow because you kind of like your bones are all developed and Oh, you mean physically? Physically, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, like physically. But if like the model of metaphor we have for Christianity is mostly not physical human development, but it's actually like agricultural development. Mm. Like healthy trees grow, period. It's not like healthy humans where you kind of peak at around yeah. 15 to 22. Sure. Like a, a really healthy tree is either growing or dying. And so it's the same with our faith. It's either growing and not necessarily or growing feet at a time. Yeah, just incrementally. But yeah, but they're, it's they're at a minimum. Leaves, fruit, yeah. things happening. Yeah. And so if you think about it, in terms of agriculture, a healthy plant will be growing. Mm-hmm. It'll be seasonal, but it will be growing uh, yeah. up into the right. Generally speaking, and so even trying to think through our spirituality more as being like vines or trees, not necessarily as humans, because otherwise our metaphors run out past puberty. Yeah. Yeah, so we want to be healthy. We want to be healthy with an eye toward maturity, toward growth, toward development. Um, you know, there's plenty of places in the scripture, like I think of the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I, I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. I want you to be mature. Or places in Hebrews where the author talks about, you know, hey, you're kind of stuck on this milk. I think you're ready for some meat. Um, and I think about Paul in Colossians 1 saying, you know, that we— we proclaim Christ that we may try to present everyone mature in Christ. So it's not the maturity doesn't matter. We're going, okay, health, health is going to lead toward maturity. But as we think about trying to grow in our faith, trying to be healthy, trying to mature, um, ha- what we want to talk about today is kind of what are some, some too simplistic of approaches that maybe we tend to take 
toward toward that growth. Within a broader cultural moment, it's interesting how uh, to see different areas or arenas or schools of thought envision what it means to become a better version of yourself. Hmm. How do you go from being Seth 1.0 to Seth 2.0? How do you go from being Luke Simmons, you know, B minus to Luke Simmons A plus? How do what what is that gap? How what is the gap one? Two, how do you close that gap? How do you try to become a better version of yourself? And one of the trends I've noticed within, especially like my, my secular friends, secular neighbors, is there's this huge emphasis on therapy, right? I need to, I need to go back. I need to rethink. I need to reexamine. I need to consider my parents. I need to consider my siblings. I need to consider my earliest sexual memories, my earliest financial memories, my earliest whatever memories. And there's this going back in order to go forward. Huge emphasis. And I found it's interesting that even among my unchurched friends, any some of my church friends, it's pretty common. This might be, I'm sure, generational as well, like the boomers versus the millennials versus Gen Z, that my friends will talk about going to therapy, mm-hmm. what their therapist said, and they'll quote their therapist like they're quoting the book of Isaiah. Sure. Like there's like this authority. Yeah. Uh, well, we just recently at Gateway, we kind of revamped this thing we have, just kind of an internal document we use with our pastors and staff called a contextual profile, where we're looking at what are the different things in our community, uh, the different dynamics that people are experiencing, and how does our ministry connect with that, challenge that, you know, that sort of a thing. And we just recently revamped it after maybe seven years since we first wrote it. And one of the new things on it was the, exactly what you're talking about. It was this idea that there's a lot more of a therapeutic influence um, in our culture, in our community, in our church. Um, and that's not necessarily good or bad. That's some of what we're going to talk about. Um, but it's there, and so it's something that we need to think about. Like, this isn't a conversation that, uh, I mean, for you to even go where you've gone right now, we wouldn't have had this conversation five years ago in the same way. Absolutely. And so... In the past, like I remember watching the show Mad Men, uh, there's like this whole like housewife sitting around talking about how one of them might go see a therapist and like, ooh, I want to try it. And it's <laughs> there's like this, you know, tantalizing, I'm going to sit down and talk to someone about my feelings. Ooh, I don't know. I'm not progressive enough for that. And that was, yeah. and so as recently as 40, 50 years ago, which in the scope of world history is very recent, mm-hmm. that was totally unheard of, totally unthought of. Well, very stigmatized. Yeah, and it was, right, and even probably one of the real blessings is that you know therapy and counseling and asking for help is way less stigmatized than it once was. Now, yeah, someone can say I'm going to therapy, and someone doesn't think is that court ordered. Sure. What did you do? Right. And there's not like this assumption that someone is a psychopath or on the verge of you know committing yeah. mass murder, right? Which may or may not be the case, but you can be a a relatively well functioning person participating in society. And go to therapy, and people go like, "Oh, good for you." And yeah. that's kind of like the the flinch. So therapy is kind of one direction that is increasing. Yes, and so I'd call it like the general secular approach is is this kind of silver bullet. If I want to be a better version of myself, there's really only one way, and it has something to do with my psychosocial sexual development, examining my childhood, becoming self aware, and processing through it through various modalities and trainings, so that I can become like in control, it's a way of gaining autonomy is that individuation process of separating from the patterns that have been put on me by my family of origin and rather becoming my own self, which is that process of the therapeutic process. And so that'd be like the dominant secular approach of how do I become a better version of myself? So I go back to go forward, period, the end. Whereas on the other side, you see kind of a religious fundamentalism 
that is pretty popular, pretty common, probably more so in Arizona than in other parts. It's probably not that common in Australia or whatever, but yeah. I'm sure there's pockets of it. At least, and this is some of like the, the school that I was in, not a literal school, but a, a, a school of thinking that I was kind of raised up in, which is this idea that behaviors always stem from beliefs. In particular, they stem from beliefs about God. Therefore, if there's a behavior or an, an emotion or an expression of the self that is incongruent with my vision for myself or my what I believe should be my vision for myself, it's a theology problem. And mm-hmm. so I need to go out and swap beliefs, false beliefs for true beliefs, mm-hmm. and I need to cognitively assert, assert and uh, assent to the right stuff. And so if I get right theology, then that will manifest in right living and so yeah well i mean i think about romans 12 right in view of god's mercy present your bodies as living sacrifice holy and pleasing and acceptable to him um do do not be conformed to the pattern of this world be transformed by the renewal of your mind yeah and so so there's a biblical ground for that kind of idea so that that way of interpreting that verse that the renewing of your mind is swapping bad theology for good theology yeah that's that's a, a way of reading that text that especially folks in the reform tradition more fundamentalist inclinations will go that direction and i'm sure it's in other traditions but i'm just less familiar with other traditions sure. so yeah. there you go pentecostals might listen and be like that's true of us too sometimes and so uh this this idea of belief swapping mm-hmm. is is a big part of that even like what the mind is the mind in our, the assumption in that school of thinking is the mind is this rational cognitive Ascent, not ascent, uh, process. And I'm mm-hmm. either I have beliefs and I don't have beliefs, and I swap beliefs and I get better behavior. And at least within our church and within some of our our surrounding deal, there's like if someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm struggling with uh, financial anxiety." Yeah. Uh, there's. That's that's a really interesting thing because you could go in a bunch of different directions. Yeah, I'm, you could go. Maybe they need just coaching on like practical financial skills you go maybe it's a theology thing right it's about you're not trusting the lord with your money or um you know maybe it's that you know and then the anxiety could be a theology kind of problem like hey you're worrying about tomorrow tomorrow will take care of itself kind of a matthew 6 sort of thing trust the lord or it could also be kind of a you know have kind of some therapeutic implications so that's a really interesting example like you could go a lot of different directions and uh, and maybe bump into what's actually the issue. Yeah. So so my, my the point is, someone comes to you with a presenting problem. I have financial anxiety, and there's a type of person who's going to go. I have some verses for that. Yeah. Here's a verse about God's sovereignty. You're not trusting God as rule of the universe. Yeah. It's a, they're assuming there's a belief problem there. There's another type of person, and you could also go. Well, this verse says, "Don't be anxious." So. Stop it. Stop. Right. Yeah. Sure. And, but we the, thought about not having that anxiety. Yeah. 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 So that's like the theology deal. Then there's like a pragmatic approach. Oh, let me help you solve this problem. Yeah. You, you maybe you need to take a Dave Ramsey class or let me get in your budget and work through this with you. Well, sure. If you just had a little more dominion in your life, you'd do that. There's another type of person who's like, well, all anxiety somehow stems from childhood wounds. Let's talk about the way money was processed in your childhood. And we probably need to talk about your fear of poverty and we yeah. talk about how your parents talked or didn't talk about money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's all these instincts and I I'm noticing more and more that people's ability to have to hold together all three of those instincts is pretty low. 
Hmm. There's mostly a type of person who presumes it's either pragmatic, it's either theological, or it's either therapeutic. And people kind of are quick to put in the box. This is a lot of what Vicky, our counseling director, has been really helpful at in these last couple of years, is just going, someone's presenting a problem, and if you don't approach that with curiosity, you're going to totally probably miss what's going on. Sure. Because it's complicated. And so uh, I wanted to have a discussion about this because I think it's important to see, for us to see that I think in vision of our discipleship of growing into maturity, you cannot actually separate the therapeutic from the theological. That mm. it's not, is it this or is it that? I think it's always a both situation. Okay. And I think that's true without exception. And so that's going to be my argument. Wow, it's, without it's, exception? Without exception. Okay, so, so the rest of this conversation, yeah. I'm going to be trying to think. What find, is the find exception? Find the exception, yeah. So now I'm thinking about exceptions. <laughs> but, but here's... here's Without exception, yeah. except for these exceptions. <laughs> yeah. So no, but I, but your point, wh whether it's without exception or not, what you're saying is, hey, these are really, really connected. Yeah, it's and we connected. separate them at at really our own cost. Absolutely, and and I think this goes all the so, way. So back. yeah, so don't listen to this going. Oh well, I can think of the exception. Think of it going. What's the point? The point is these are really integrated. Yeah. So even. Yeah, we'll get to possible exceptions, and I'll <laughs> shoot holes in them later. Okay. But here's what I mean. The way that God designs the world, so this is what I'm going to argue for here, is that there is a fundamentally relational epistemological process that all humans engage in, and it's necessarily part of all learning, period, the end. Okay. You, you cannot learn... Say that again. There's a relational epistemological process. Yeah. So the way by which we gain knowledge, that's epistemology. What does it mean to know something? We're always knowing something... Because we've learned it from somewhere, which is connected to someone. So 2 plus 2 equals 4. Some person taught you that. Yeah. Right. You, what is the concept of 1 versus 2? What is this squiggly line with this straight line with a cross through it, with this squiggly line equal, with an equal sign? What does it mean? Some totals. Some person taught us something, right? So sure. we relationally learn all things. We come out of the womb looking to be cared for and looking to learn and from there's not a thing we learn that's not somehow yeah and even you think because i first went well but you know i could read something for myself in a book but someone wrote the book someone wrote the book someone hands you the book someone has represented something to you somewhere yeah. so i'm gonna argue that nobody has ever learned anything that wasn't somehow derivative of a relationship maybe not a close relationship yeah maybe maybe far maybe close, whether it's reading, writing, something. Uh, there's a communal process in the, the building of a person. And yeah. again, even, even if you think about something that is in our genetic code, like breathing, mm -hmm. well, you got that from someone called your mother and your father, yeah. right? Whether you know them or not, yeah. there's things even in our genes that are passed down from us that our body comes out knowing how to do, but it learned to do it because it was programmed. Well, and I, I like even how, as you're describing learning, you're talking about things you might know, right? Those are things you learn. You learn things that you know, but you're also thinking about the things you do, right? Which is other stuff you have to learn, like what, you know, how to tie your shoes or right? yes. learning is not just about kind of the file cabinet of information you have, but it's that plus your, your skills that are living in life. And really that's where life is, right? When we go, Hey, I want to mature. Say, I want to know more about the world, and I want to live more effectively in it. Yeah, Michael Pogliani, who's an epistemologian, he talked about this as being the tacit dimension of knowledge. So tacit being uh, 
handheld practical kind of like tactical yeah tactical yeah it's it's a hands-on hands-in and you'd say that all knowledge is tacit i mean it's learned through the senses Mm -hmm. so philosophers just talk about a priori versus a posteriori so a priori meaning pre the senses or without the senses a posteriori meaning after the senses um and so or from the senses not from the senses is, is the idea and what he's arguing is there's no such thing as knowledge not from the senses. Hmm. So you're tasting, touching, seeing, sensing, smelling. Everything is being taken in from somewhere, whether it's language, eye contact, body language, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you think about the idea of like playing guitar, mm-hmm. you can read a book on playing guitar. but And so you go like, did I learn that tacitly or information? But you have to use your eyes to look at the page, they dart back and forth. Someone taught you to read. Yep. You learned to read from somewhere. Someone wrote the book, so it's relational. But then also, until it gets into your body and you practice it and work it out and with your hands, the information just being in your head, like you could read 17 books on how to play guitar, but until your fingers touch the screen, the, the strings, it doesn't matter. And so, yep. so it must be learned relationally and, and experienced. So there's like a relational on the front end and experience relational on the back end. And even then... When you are playing guitar, the only way you know if you're doing good or not is by comparing it to other experiences you've had of other people playing guitar. Okay. If I do this sure. chord and yeah. it sounds bad or if it buzzes or if it's not good, mm-hmm. I'm not learning. I'm not evaluating that in a vacuum. I'm evaluating on the basis of other relational experiences I've had of music, of other people's performance, et cetera, et cetera. So even when we feel like we're doing something by ourselves, reading a book, playing guitar by myself in a room, we're actually doing it. We're importing relational situations into that. Yeah. And and I think that that is actually just the way that God made it, that God designed us to exclusively be able to learn relationally and experientially. So this idea that you're going to learn something in a classroom by yourself or in an online tutorial by yourself and I'm going to do like, it's everything we have to see. This is all relational process. So I hear that. That makes a lot of sense. I think I'm convinced, but I'm not sure I connect yet with going, okay, then how does that tell me that everything about my learning and growing is both theological and therapeutic? Yeah. So in Genesis chapter one, the first thing we learn about humans. And so here's kind of backing up before we get to Genesis one, they're saying Moses wrote this to a people He's retelling the story of creation to a people who are just recently delivered from slavery, right? So they're, yeah. he, the Moses is writing Genesis probably somewhere along the way. They're in the desert on the way to the promised land, and he's— Yeah, they have to kind of be wondering, like, who is this God? Yeah. Where, what's our story with that? Because so far they've understood their identity as being second-class citizens or slaves, mm-hmm. and they might have murmurs of— God spoke to our people a long time ago or something like that. Right. And so Moses begins to re-narrate, to retell them. Here's where you actually came from, and here's who you actually are. And that's Genesis 1 uh, through 11. Is that like proto-narrative story. He's, really tell- he's retelling the people, here's who you are, here's what the world is. What Egypt has told you is, is not true. And so the first thing he tells them, so this is, these are suffering, sinning people, former slaves, uh, they're culpable, they're sinners, and they're sufferers. They've been victimized. The first thing he tells them is, God said, let us make them in our image. Mm. And they would have known what image meant. Image was representation, right? The yeah. 
the, the pharaohs would have little statues of themselves mm-hmm. to remind people of whose territory you're in. Yeah. In case you forget, here's a little statue of the pharaoh, and it's, it's the image and likeness. It's a likeness of pharaoh, and he's the boss around here. And so remember what world you're living in. You're living in pharaoh's world. And God tells these slaves, hey, you're made in God's image. And what that means is that people are meant to represent God to people. Hmm. And yeah. so from the very beginning... I am experiencing, like from the moment I'm born, even like pre-born, in the womb, I'm experiencing someone representing God to me as an image bearer. Yeah. And that person is doing it. Whether you realize it or not, because obviously in the womb you don't realize it. Yeah. You're not cognitively processing, yeah. oh, let me build my theology based on this. Sure. But there's all these gut assumptions and senses uh, that of what's going on here, right? And so you're, and so God... And you know that because once you do become aware of like, Hey, here's how I think about God. You realize, oh, that's connected to how I experienced my father, and that's okay. connected to how I experienced, yeah, all those things. Oh, totally. And I think about I, I so often like the main image I have of God in my head is that He's uh, attentive, He's paying attention, but He's a little bit at a distance. He's calling the plays, but it's basically up to me to make it happen. Okay. That's like the main uh-huh. gap. And when I think about that, like it's I picture my dad on the sideline. I'm playing basketball. He's paying attention. He's tuned in. He cares, but he's like over there saying it's on you because hmm. I'm the coach and you're the player. Yeah. Right. And like, so that's like a regular image of God that I'm having to work through. That's partially accurate, partially flawed. And it's basically like, well, the main person in my life who's meant to image God to me is my father who's meant to image the father in heaven. And yeah. so sure. th- that image is not all bad. It's not all good. And yeah. every single person without exception is given this mixed representation of who God is, and God somehow in his wisdom designed, this is how it should be. Hmm. I'll make these people, and they'll be my image and likeness, and they'll represent me to people, and people will begin to form opinions about me on the basis of their experience of them. Wow. And it seems... That's why, I mean, when you put it like that, that is like, wow, God, like, really? <laughs> like, that, that's so interesting. And I think part of it is the way that God designed this is there's no other way. That God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, he's a relational being who exists in this like eternal connected triunus. Yeah. And he creates humans to be relational beings who learn relationally, process relationally. So part of him designing us to be relational processing beings was meant to give us a picture of the Trinity, right? That there's difference and unity. And so even some of this, like everything about if we're going to contrast your dad and my dad, mm-hmm. um, for you to, like there's an element of that like coach image that my dad has mm-hmm. that someone who didn't have a coach dad maybe is missing out on, on their well-roundedness picture of God. Mm-hmm. So someone else had a dad who was a therapist or a potter mm-hmm. or something else, they might have differently semi-accurate sure. pictures. And when we kind of combine the, the pros and cons of all of our things, we kind of begin to experience and walk in a different type of fullness of image of what God is. And so here's here's the main thing, and this is nothing that we've heard about God didn't come somehow through a person relationally. So this is even like I think about Second Timothy 2. This is Paul talking to uh, Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of witnesses and trust to faithful men. Hmm. Yeah. Right. He's going, you learn about this stuff from me. And guess what? Paul 
has an angle that's slightly different than John or Peter. Sure. Right. If you're going to preach the, and even different aspects of Paul's books, like if you're going to teach Colossians or Philippians, or if you're going to teach first Peter versus second John, all of these things are accurate, mm-hmm. but angled depictions of yeah. the gospel. <laughs> One of my favorite little insights to that is I, I don't remember. I think it's in second Peter where Peter says, you know, there's these writings of Paul that are hard to understand. <laughs> You know, some people distort them, you know, they shouldn't do that, you know, like they do the other scriptures, which A, tells you that Peter thought Paul's writing was scripture, which is interesting, but also like to go, man, Peter thought, yeah, that guy's a little heady, (laughs) you know, that's tough, that's hard stuff to understand, and you go like, that's okay. Yeah, and Paul had a certain background. Sure. He's educated in the greatest of schools. Peter had a certain background, not educated in the greatest of schools. Even if you talk to Greek scholars, like the difference between like second Peter and any Paul book yeah. is astoundingly different in terms, in terms of, of the literary construction. Yeah. In terms of like writing. the quality, sophistication of writing, and even the book of Hebrews is way more sophisticated than all of those. Yeah. And then you have John who seems obviously schooled, but he's not philosophized. John's kind of like the Apple, like, you know, Apple products. Okay. Like it's, it's just really clean and it's so clean. It's like designed like John. John is kind of where most Greek students begin. John is the simplest Greek, but it's so simple. It's on purpose. Yeah. Whereas second Peter is simple because he's like less educated. He's less educated. Right. So there's simplicity because that's all you got. And there's simplicity because you're writing artistically or with design. And Mm, that's John versus second Peter. So, but so Peter knows Paul's written these books that are speaking the gospel. And he goes, I have more to add. Mm-hmm. You know, did Paul give an incomplete picture? Well, his picture was accurate, but it was his picture. And God in his wisdom wanted us to have Peter's books and Paul's books right. they, and John's books. And they, they, well, they round out this thing. But my point is... Not because they're contradicting one another, but they're filling out one another. Yeah, they're all... So we, we talk about how we can know God truly, but we can't know God fully. Right. And so all these books are true but they contribute to give us a fuller picture yeah. of what God is doing. And it's similar. Like I think about like when I first joined staff and there's you and Matthew, kind of the senior leadership, mm-hmm. and you're both true pastors, but the two of you together are, are like you we round each other out. And this is part of the way that God works is he gives us true, but non-full pictures of himself through, through different people. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm arguing that, Therapy is necessary, or, and not necessarily going to therapy per se, but the therapeutic process of looking at family of origin, considering family of origin, going, what are the images of God that I learned to these things? Because, or, or, or just other, you know, views on different stuff, right? You talked about financial anxiety. Yes. Right? So that, that's not necessarily just image of God, but that's like the way we talked about money and those things. Yeah, that so many things have been represented to me. And it's not just what has been taught, but what I've caught. Mm-hmm. What I've 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 heard of the phrase like it's more important to show than to tell, because we think about like parenting is telling our kids to stuff, but more it's more important that we show them and by through doing it and through yeah. experiencing it. And so, what we saw our parents or guardians do shapes a ton of our instincts. What we consider normal, what is part of our process. Like I think about with Taylor and I with my son who's in like this Tasmanian devil face, you know, mm-hmm. just tearing it up, right? And what's what's an appropriate level of noise inside the house? Well, uh, my wife, who's the youngest of two uh, 
angelic girls. Sweet, <laughs> 4.0, kind, sure. attentive, conscientious girls. Like what's normal to her on volume in the house versus me, who's the oldest of four, son of a PE teacher. <laughs> sure. Right. There's just a different level of normal volume. Yeah. Right. And so there's like real tension that we have sometimes because our sense of what's acceptable and normal comes from our childhood, not necessarily from a Bible verse. Right. Right. Well, here's a verse that says children obey your parents. Right. And the household should be in order. Well, what does in order mean? Right. Well, like, here's a verse before it that says parents don't exasperate your children. Yeah. And which so might be being too strict or not strict enough. Yeah. But even like what constitutes a household in order? Sure. Well, my household felt in order and it was this loud. Well, her household felt in order and it was that loud. And right. so, yeah. well, so, so much of that, you're trying to do submission to the scriptures, but you're also doing it as a person who's been indelibly formed by our childhood. And so just understanding that there are no beliefs or instincts we have period that have not come somehow through people. Like I think even Paul on the road to Damascus, who has a direct experience with God, absolutely direct. God still speaks to him in a language Hmm. that Paul learned from a person. Yeah. And God is, giving him a direct experience of himself as person. Yeah. Like there's no bypassing the relational process, the relational ingredients that our words and instincts have come so much from the people around us. And in believing that we can just do belief swapping is silly. But here's the thing too, is that belief swapping is actually a relational process by itself. Sure. That if I am going, okay, so you come to me and say you have financial anxiety and I go, oh wow, that stinks. Because Philippians 4 says you shouldn't be anxious about nothing. Yeah. And you go, oh, okay. And suppose that's like done with the best of intentions, the best of heart, the quality relationship. Uh, Partly what is learned and experienced in that moment is um, I'm going to have feelings that I need to just stop. And if I go to Seth, he's going to give me a verse to help me stop my feelings. Yeah. And so I'm modeling for you, this is what you do to people when they come to you with this, and then you'll pass it on at some sure. point. Yeah. Or maybe you'll go like, well, that, you'll try that for a couple of years, it doesn't work, you get frustrated and angry, you think, maybe I don't actually believe it, and you start to feel shame. Maybe I'm just not submitting the scriptures. And, and so there's always this relational process going on. And I think one of the keys is to understand that when we talk about therapy or theology, to critiquing the more secular side, it's this reality that we're living in God's world, Mm-hmm. And he designed the world a certain way, and we're inhabit. It's kind of like gravity. You can believe it or not believe it, as much as you want. It's true, and it's affecting you mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, uh, it's same with what's the reality of God. You can believe it or not believe it all you want to, but it's true and it's affecting you yeah. all the time. And trying to inhabit the world the Creator made without acknowledging the Creator is not really going to make sense. Sure. So I'm imagining that. Um I'm dealing with just life stuff. Maybe it's how loud should my two-year-old be allowed to be in the house. Uh, maybe it's I'm going through a transition in my work and I'm struggling to enjoy it and figure out what my purpose is in it. Maybe it's I've got a kid headed off to college and I'm grieving the loss of that. Um, you know, maybe it's I'm, you know, I just went through a divorce and I'm trying to figure out how to kind of put the pieces of my heart back together and I'm kind of imagining all these scenarios and going like, okay, if Sam there and I'm going, I want to be healthy. I want to mature. I want to grow. 
but goodness gracious, now do I need to see a therapist and a pastor and a practical life coach? And uh, like, what, what do I do? Like, where do I go? What, what help do I get? Cause that all just sounds like, I'll never mind. I'll just endure it. You know, Let's um, talk, if uh, I got to go too much, like, so kind of where's the rubber meet the road on this to go. Okay. Now what? Let's pick a, pick a specific one and talk through it. Which one do you want to do? Uh, let's talk through um, my child is leaving for college and I'm now going to be an empty nester or my relationship with them is going to change. So my child is leaving for college and how am I feeling about it? Like way too happy or way too sad? Uh, sad. Way too sad. And so... I, yeah, I don't know if it's too sad, but I just feel really, really sad. Like my family... I, I've talked to a number of uh, moms, especially who were stay-at-home moms, who kind of go, "Man, I had a real clear purpose for the last two decades, and now that purpose seems to be over." And I'm kind of figuring out, "Who am I? What does this mean? What do I do? What does this look like?" It, that's a really good example because transitions like that are some of the biggest causes of, uh, like, unsettling emotions or painful emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really think there are good or bad emotions. I think they're just Emotions that are fun to have, emotions that are not fun to have. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because, you know, calling sadness a bad emotion is like, well, you know, someone you love getting more... It's distance. usually experienced as a negative emotion. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's, like, morally negative, yeah. necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. Unsettling, yeah. painful, sure. negative. So, uh, these type of transitions, so you're going, I'm feeling the sadness, and sometimes uh, I've talked to folks who, like, you're not supposed to enjoy like the negative emotions that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do them right sometimes it's kind of like i don't ever like eating a salad Mm -hmm. but it's sometimes it's good and it's the right thing and so uh you know grief in particular is always an expression or a, a revealer of value or love so whenever you're feeling sad or feeling a grief you should be going what do i love that's either being taken from me or being threatened or uh, changing or shifting. And so in that scenario, there's a lot that someone might love. They might love having a clear purpose mm-hmm. and that's going away. They might just love spending time with their kid and that's changing. They might love, um, the, the rhythm and pattern they've had and they felt competence. They might love the feeling of competence. I've been good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, they might love, uh, the season of I connecting with other stay at home moms and the the connections and friendships that creates and the possibility and like the, the mm-hmm. things, those directions. And they might love that. They might love uh, that they are doing what their parents always wanted them to do. So even into your forties, when typically you become an empty nester, you might go, Oh, I, I love that. What my mom and dad hoped for me, I am doing it mm-hmm. and I've been doing that. And so I love the fact that I've been making mom and dad proud this season. So there's so many things that might, and some people might be all of those things. And so, sure. like, there's no really single variable or single cause emotions. Yeah. And so when you come to this season of sadness, I think part of it you're going, uh, what is this revealing about what I love that the scriptures say that I should love? Mm-hmm. Like, all of those things. Like, we're called to do and have dominion. The competence. It's good to feel competent. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's it, we... We want to honor our parents. Like, that's good. To, it's good to love your kids. It's all, so what about what I love is being revealed here that the scriptures really affirm that I can just 
So then that means I, my sadness is probably certainly appropriately placed. Yeah. But then other things, what about that my love, what I love here is being revealed that the scriptures don't approve of. Hmm. Like maybe I just love, um, I loved having successful kids that made me feel superior to other moms who weren't stay-at-home moms. And I'm losing this like aspect of my self-worth and I have to, I don't know who I am anymore. And I, and I love the feeling of superiority or I love the feeling of being able to compare myself to others and therefore feel good about myself. And, oh, well, that's revealing something. And yeah. I probably need to process through that. So, so there's like an aspect of what the scriptures affirm or don't affirm. And even what it says about God, it doesn't like the, the things that are proved of love wise mm-hmm. is there. But there's also this aspect of whenever we are feeling like, overwhelming emotions where we're going, I don't feel like I can handle this. Like mm-hmm. I need, I need help or I need, uh, one of the ways we know we need help is we're flinching towards escape or medication or even just like sometimes you don't know you need help until you notice yourself escaping or medicating. Yeah, sure. And then you go, I think I need help. Right. Sometimes the healthier you are, the more we go like, I think I need help. Right. Yeah. And so it's the same so, with like, so all that's a really helpful kind of way of thinking through that. But I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is like when, when we've, kind of bump into these things. Yeah. Is it like, Hey, I need to somehow develop the infrastructure and the, you know, muscles to be able to talk myself through those things from kind of a theological and therapeutic sort of place. Is it like, Hey, here's where, here's the place I should go to get help. Um, do I kind of just pinball my way around stuff? to see what's helpful. Is there stuff to, is there, is there places to avoid? You know, I don't, I don't know. Are there- well, I think one of the things is important to pay attention to the emotions you have about your emotions. Hmm. So you feel sad and you feel like that means something's wrong or I shouldn't feel this way. Or, uh, you know, the scriptures say rejoice in the Lord. And so I shouldn't be sad. Or, yeah. um, when I got sad as a kid, my parents just said the Tylenol's in the counter, go get it. You know, you, hmm. you have pain, just stop the pain yeah. you know, or, you know, Oh, you're feeling sad. Well, guess what? They're starving kids in Africa. So, so realizing that there's like theology that filters our experience of our emotions in the first place. And there's family of origin stuff that filters our experience of our emotions in the first place. And so those like secondary emotions, I think, tell me when I need to do work in either direction. Hmm. Right. So how do I feel about my feelings? I'm feeling happy and that makes me feel guilty because don't you know there are people out there who are suffering or yeah. I feel happy and that makes me feel guilty because don't you remember what you did last week, you know, or I feel sad and that makes me feel insecure about my faith because don't I trust God is sovereign and good or I feel sad and that makes me feel um, immediately insecure because when I was sad as a child, I was regularly told I'll give you something to cry about, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, so, sure. so there's the, the feelings about our feelings can reveal a lot about if there's like a gap in our understanding of the scriptures or some like early childhood stuff we need to process through and think through. Mm. And it, those, it's not necessarily the primary emotions, but it's the secondary emotions mm. I think tend to reveal how we're interpreting them. Because yeah. I think the first emotions, like even like this idea, I'm feeling really sad at this transition, the assumption that maybe something's wrong with me and I need help to get this thing unwrong with me. Whereas some folks can experience that transition and go, I'm very sad, period, the end. Yeah. And there's not necessarily a, a, a moral value or a label or a judgment of the emotion. There's just an, an acknowledgement of the emotion. Well, and even like as I think of a situation like that and go, it, it's so, the, the, this whole conversation just reveals how integrated everything is, right? Because it's like, 
Well, it's not just that I'm sad because that feels like, oh, that's good. That's okay. I'm sad, but it's also that I feel aimless. And it's also that I now have questions about, you know, did I, was my college years wasted because now I don't remember any of that stuff and it's hard to find a job and, 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 right. Issue, issue, issue. You know, it's this, and it's this big, you know, knot of stuff. And so I guess some of what I think is, as I hear about this, is because so many of our problems and challenges um, are multi-layered, it makes sense that there would be multi-layered uh, help. Yeah, totally. And I and I, I think I've just found a ton of freedom in, like that point I said earlier, there's just no single cause emotions. Almost always I'm like this, uh, you know, cesspool of motivations and beliefs and experiences that are producing. Yeah my emotional state at any given moment. But I think part of it is for us just acknowledge that the way we process through transitions in life and difficulties in life or, or is, is just absolutely something that we've learned and has been a relational process from get to go. And separating that, again, like relationally, we experience God, we've experienced our pastors, our shepherds, our counselors, our, our leaders, our mentors, um, mothers, fathers, other people's mothers, other people's fathers. That's all contributing to, I learned to process these things somewhere, somehow. And sometimes it's reactively. I saw them do that. I'm never going to do that. So we make like vows to not be that way. Sure. Sometimes it's positively. I saw them do that. I think that works or it's working for them. I want to do that as well. And, and I think this is one of the big things with like the whole deconstruction phenomenon right now. And that I think we as a church and we as Christians need to be really sensitive to is this reality that, so suppose someone never been at church in their life. They have all these things. They come to church. They hear Luke Simmons preach the gospel. And they go, wow. And the Spirit uses the sermon, and their heart is awakened, and they go, I'm a Christian now. And so there's an experience of Luke that actually facilitates an experience of God. Mm-hmm. And then suppose, Luke, the next week, you're found out to, like, be a mass murderer. <laughs> Right. Okay. Luke has been actually, you know, killing people one household at a time in his neighborhood and just waiting until he gets caught, you know. Or I think a more likely example is I tried to talk to Luke in the lobby and I thought he kind of blew me off. Yeah. You mean you think that's more likely to happen? <laughs> he was well, kind of rude. I yeah. hope that's more likely than me <laughs> yeah. being found out to be a mass murderer. I yeah. just hope no one finds out. Or he was rude. So I, um, I come back to church next week, so excited to talk to Luke. That day... Luke has a migraine. Yeah. He should have stayed home, but he was trying to tough it out because he's. Yeah, or just he was a jerk. Yeah. And someone tries to talk <laughs> I, I can to handle him that example. And he's just rude, you know, yeah. and for, for whatever reason. Right. Luke might have had 76 reasons why he was a jerk that day, but that way he was a jerk. You're like, wow, that guy last week talked about unconditional love and grace and acceptance. And today he was like, yeah, whatever, talk to someone else. Right. And you know, whoa. All of a sudden there's this dissonance, a sure. wave of. Can I trust what he said about God last week if what I experienced with him this week is this? Right. And so many folks, especially within the broader evangelical movement, hear or experience someone's ministry, fruit of ministry, so much, and like they, someone that they learned to trust teaches them about God, and then they eventually learn they can't trust that person. Right. And even without outside of evangelical church, I have some friends who are like former LDS, and mm-hmm. there's like this, we still think we love Jesus, but we don't know who we can trust to tell us about him. Yeah. Wow. Because yeah. we've been lied to for so long. Sure. And who, who do I go to that I think can really, t- and so 
they talk to me, but they're like, I, and I understand why they're like, why did I trust you? I trusted these people for 20 years. Right. And they weren't telling me the truth. Right. So, and there's like this relational trust building process that over time they're going. And so I feel like I could play that hand on them and say, no, you need to believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity like right now. Yeah. But part of it is like, I'm trying to be empathetic to this reality that they're going, why would, on what basis would they trust me versus trust previous leaders? Because if they felt lied to manipulated for so long, now they're trying to learn about Jesus and going, do I trust John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, Peter, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, like the people with trust who have been hurt by religious right. institutions. That's like religious trauma is a big deal. And sure. I'm trying to make sense of who to trust. And so that, was, that is both the absolutely a hundred percent, a theological problem and absolutely hundred percent a relational problem. Yeah. Yeah. Man, well, that's interesting. And, um, yeah, I just, I think so much of this is being made in the image of a relational God means that everything about life is inherently relational. I feel like that that's a, a takeaway for me because I feel like a lot of times we sort of imagine ourselves to be sort of outside of our relationships, you know, um, disconnected from that, kind of neutral observers who can really kind of easily uh, just flip switches and... You know, once you get into the <laughs> hairy problems of life, you go, uh, it actually isn't that simple. So, so this is helpful. And, and I think like we said at the beginning, you know, our, our, in the end, we want everyone to be mature, but the process there is healthy. Yeah. And, and a healthy disciple is someone that is seeing the world as part of this relational integrated reality that, that we're living in because that's who God is. Well, and I think that understanding the integration really helps me make sense of the gaps I experience in my life where mm. I believe X about God, but functionally I live like Y is true about God. Yeah. And maybe Y is not the clearest. X is true about God, but I live like Z is the true of God. Right. Why do I believe that God is good, but I still sometimes feel like there's, I have this FOMO of out there somewhere yeah. else is good that he's withholding from me. Sure. Like that's the, the, the lie that Adam and Eve fall into in the garden this Satan comes to them and says, Hey, God's withholding good things from you. Hmm. And they fall into it. Yeah. Whereas all they've gotten from God is absolute blessing and absolute, but someone comes to them yep. and causes theological problems, but it happens relationally. Yeah. Right. There's, there's uh, a, there's a serpent that's proximate sure. that undermines and, and questions. And so, I think especially for Christians who are maybe confessing something, one thing about God, but having a hard time living into that reality, I think that's one of the indications that there's some like family of origin or at least like relational difficulty we have to process through of going, uh, where did I, like, where, where did I learn that functionally I have to live this way in order to like live a good life? Whereas theologically I'm trying to confess that this is the way I want to learn. And so so I think being able to go back and process through that, there is a reality that you have to go back to go forward. I see mm-hmm. this all the time talking with folks who are struggling sexually, um, who 900% understand what God's will for them is, that they'd be sexually pure. Sure. But functionally, they can't slash won't. Yeah. Like there's there's a, a huge need there to go back before you go forward. Yeah. Or even I talked to some a woman a couple weeks ago who you know was assaulted Mm. and she went for counseling at a different church, I think. And she's like, I went to counseling there and they just told me a bunch of stuff I already knew. Like Jesus loves me. He has a wonderful plan for your life. 
she was like, I know all that crap. I just can't sleep at night. You know, yeah, like sure. I, I can't function. I don't know what to do. And, and so there's like, she's like, there's this theology that's accurate, yeah. but, but relationally, functionally, mm-hmm. there's a gap between how it's playing out. And that's usually a trigger, a, 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 an indicator that you probably need to do some, like a lot of processing going back work. Yeah. And that's where I think that the therapeutic, not necessarily therapy in of itself, but the therapeutic process of going back in order to go forward mm-hmm. is a necessary part of our health that yeah. we're going, I'm, I'm not able to walk like I could. Well, and as I think about our church, I mean, we are really trying to go, Hey, we, we see the value in both of these things. And so maybe the, the warning that I would have for anybody is, as you're dealing with stuff, especially, and I don't know that as church leaders and with, you know, paid staff or volunteer counselors, I'm not saying we're going to nail it every time and get it right as, as we try to help people. But especially for people who, if, if you go outside the church, just just be careful that, uh, and inside the church too, but just be careful that you're kind of paying attention to some of these things. Right? I, I, like I know people who go, well, I, I just feel too embarrassed to ever talk to anyone in the church about that issue, so I'm going to go see a therapist. Great, go see a therapist. But make sure that therapist has a theological part of how they think about stuff that they can help you navigate. Um, well, you know, Or you go to a biblical counselor. Great. But make sure that that biblical counselor isn't just a, hey, take two verses, write these down 10 times and, you know, call me in the morning. So, um, yeah, I think there is a, a sense in which going like, let's make sure we, we get help, which I think all this is where this is going to end. Seth, congratulations. Is uh, I think what you're doing here is you're offering to meet with everyone who listens about all their problems. If anybody has an emotion, I will meet with them for endless hours, multiple days a week. Awesome. Great. Anybody listening has any emotions, please hit me up. Talk about it. Yeah, your, uh, your email address is markandress at redemptionaz.com. Yeah, Mark, Mark loves to meet with people for long hours w- without a definite end date. So. <laughs> no, that's not true. Mark does not love to do that. Anyway, any uh, closing thoughts, Seth? Yeah, I hope people feel permission. I hope you listeners feel permission to be a relational person who yeah. also needs to submit to the scriptures and that that's a relational process. You need to go back to go forward, and you absolutely need to have your mind renewed, which is, I think, part of that relational process. So see yourself as whole. Don't just throw verse at yourself. And I, I do think the main way that you understand the gap between your health and where you how, where you want to be is going to be paying attention to those secondary emotions, your feelings mm-hmm. about your feelings. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks for this conversation. Uh, yeah, and for those of you listening, we just appreciate you hanging with us. And Um, I think that's it for today. So we'll see you next time. Seth, have a great one. You too.